okay? First Timothy, and we're actually, I want to just start in Acts chapter 16. I know I'm studying. We have sheets on the table if anybody wants to grab one. Uh, for those of you just tuning in from home or just checking us out, we are going through the books of the Bible one book at a time. We started, a, when did we start? A while ago, right? <laughs> Almost two years ago, a year and a half ago? A year and a half ago, like last October, October 2022, I think we started going through one book at a time, and I was... I was slower in the beginning, and then I kind of found my stride. I'm trying to keep it one book a week just to give an overview and a framework of the Bible to give you a working understanding. My mind is already turning. You know, like if the Lord doesn't come back, like where do we go next? Uh, I have some ideas, but uh, my wife's like, can we finish the Bible first? Let me do that, yes. All right. So six chapters, 113 verses, a little like 2,244 words. The author is very much Paul. The year is approximately 67 A.D., so it's a later book, 67 A.D. Um, if Acts 16, if you want to look over there in Acts 16, verse 1, the Bible says in certain... Uh, nope, wrong chapter. Uh, then came he, meaning Paul, to Derby and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timotheus. That's Timothy. Uh, the son of a certain woman, which was a Jewess, and believed, but his father was a Greek. So Timothy had a Greek father and a Jewish mother. He came from a broken home. So when you and I start to think we need ideal circumstances to serve God, you don't need ideal circumstances because there is no such thing as ideal circumstances. You know, the ladies are going to look at Rahab tomorrow night. She is not in an ideal set of circumstances to serve God. But you just got to meet God where you are. Wherever you are, that's what God is willing to work with, and that's a blessing. And, and Timothy's got, you know, a dad. It says the mother was Jewish and believed, and the father was a Greek, which means by default that he didn't believe. So they must have been like a broken home. And uh, if you read about Acts 14, verses 6 and 7, I'm not going to flip there, but it looks like to me that Timothy was probably converted during Paul's mission trip to those towns of Derby and Lystra because he's preaching there. And in 1 Timothy, he calls Timothy my own son in the faith. And he really only used that term for people that he led to Christ or somehow got saved in his ministry. So I believe that Timothy was begotten through the gospel under the preaching of Paul. And that's why Paul had such a special affinity for him. Verse number two, it says, he was well reported of by the brethren that were at Lystra and Iconium. So, I mean, from Acts 14 to Acts 16, it's only about seven years so in seven years, Timothy had grown so much that people all knew him. He had such a good testimony in the church. Uh, in Acts 16.3, it says, Him would Paul have to go forth with him. So his testimony was so well reported. He had such good standing among the brethren. The brethren had such good things to say about him that Paul took him to be his companion. Like, that's like legit. I mean, that's to me, that's... This guy is the real deal. I mean, Paul is no slouch. Paul's not just like messing around. Paul's in it, right? He is in the ministry. He is serving God. He's putting his life on the line. And he says, I want this man, Timothy, to come with me. That's quite an honor. I mean, that to me is like, what a recognition. That's like, you know, that would be like Mel Sabaka saying, you know, I want you to be my right-hand guy. That would be like, whoa, you know, I'd get shivers up my spine and like start praying or something like that. But Timothy must have been faithful enough that... He could go with Paul. And if you look at Philippians chapter 2, one more verse of introduction here. Again, I flip pretty fast, so stay with me if you can. If not, just listen. Philippians 2.22, Paul is uh, writing about our, our friend Timothy here. And he says in Philippians 2.22, But ye know the proof of him, that as a son, there it is again, with the Father, he hath served with me in the gospel. And so this is a beautiful relationship, a blessed fellowship, a, an older Christian taking a younger Christian under his wing, and such great things come from it. And that's really the ministry. You get it? Like, that's the ministry. Somebody that knows more and has lived a little longer with Christ, taking somebody under their wing, that's the whole Bible. I mean, that was Barnabas and Saul, and then, then Paul turned around with Timothy, Moses and Joshua, Elijah and Elisha. Like, the Bible is a story of just people taking other people under their wing and God doing something with it. So let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Let's get the context of this letter. Like, where did it come out of? Um, so 1 Timothy 1.3, 1 
1 Timothy 1.3, Paul writes, I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia. So Paul clearly couldn't stay in Ephesus. He had that Macedonian call. He had to go help some people in another part of the world, another part of Europe. So he kind of leaves Timothy in charge of the work at Ephesus, which is why we usually credit Timothy as the first bishop of the church at Ephesus, first pastor. And it looks like Timothy might have been overwhelmed by this. Because if you look at 2 Timothy, look at 2 Timothy 1.4, Paul says, um, 2 Timothy 1.4, he says, I'm mindful of thy tears. So clearly this was a trial for Timothy to be separated from his mentor and left in charge of this great church at Ephesus. He was probably overwhelmed, and it's okay sometimes you can feel overwhelmed even when you're serving God, and Timothy was overwhelmed. In fact, if you look at 1 Timothy chapter 5, look at verse 23, uh, Timothy might have been like a, a weak and timid young man. Seems like he might have even been sickly, like he might have had a nervous stomach because he's given him there, like in 1 Timothy 5, 23, he's given him medical advice. Um, that every drunk uses to justify their drinking. But uh, 1 Timothy 5.23 is, you know, drink no longer water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thine often infirmities. So Timothy was a a weak guy, and, and Paul is writing now from Corinth to encourage him, to strengthen him. And that's the context of this book. So we move now. Last week we finished Thessalonians. Now we move into the pastoral epistles. Um, all the remaining letters by Paul are the pastoral epistles, you know, just in case you need the word, because they're written to, you know, we call them that because they're written to um, pastors and elders in a congregation. We no longer are dealing with letters written to individuals, to congregations. We're writing to individuals. First Timothy, Second Timothy, Titus, even Philemon. These are written to individuals. We call them the pastoral epistles. They're leaders in the church now. And Paul's about 70 years old when he's writing these letters. He's a little older in years now. He's lived a little bit. He's served a little bit. They're beautiful letters. You find Paul's farewell in there. You find the wisdom that he's gleaned from life and ministry there. And you find great encouragement in these letters. So if you look on your sheet, there are some key words in 1 Timothy. Godliness, nine times. Doctrine, eight times. Conscience, four times. Faith or faithful, 23 times. Charge, seven times. The key phrase we'll talk about later is faithful saying. Let's look at 1 Timothy 3.15. This is a key verse of the whole book. And then we'll jump into some some details. 1 Timothy 3.15. This is a key verse of the whole book. He says, But if I tarry long, because remember Paul left him, But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And the key message is how to be a godly example to others. Because Paul tells him, let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example to the believers. Right. So, Timothy, you're a leader. You need to be an example. How do you become that example? This book will show you how. And if you're saved here today, we're all supposed to be an example to somebody. Moms to children, husbands to wives, uh, friends to lost people. We're all supposed to be a good example. So this book will show you how to be a good example. And Jesus Christ is portrayed as our teacher because that's what this book is about, teaching. And the breakdown is very simple. Chapter 1, the warning against false doctrine. Chapter 2 and 3 are directions for the church. Chapters 4 to 6, directions for the pastor. So let's go to chapter 1 and let's just start gleaning out some, some truths now and some pictures maybe. From this book, a lot to say in a little bit of time, so buckle up with me. Notice verses 2 to 4 of chapter 1. He says, Unto Timothy, my own son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. You should follow the charges that he gives in this book. He gives a bunch of charges to Timothy. It's a great study. Neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying which is in faith, so do. Please notice that Paul opens this book with the importance of guarding against false doctrine. (laughs) The first thing he talks about 
is the doctrine that's being taught at the church. The first thing Paul charges the pastor about is what's being taught over there, Timothy. And the first responsibility of a shepherd, meaning a pastor, meaning an elder, meaning a bishop, is to make sure the sheep have good pasture. Like my primary responsibility is, yes, you make house calls, you help people move, you, do, you organize events, but the main job of somebody that's been charged with preaching the Bible is to preach the Bible and to be on the lookout and make sure that there's not wrong ideas circulating and corrupting the flock and poisoning the sheep. Now, we could spiritualize that and say, yes, a husband should be looking out for what his wife is learning, and a father should be looking out for what his children might be learning, and, and a teacher or a discipler should be looking out for what his class or his disciple is learning. And those are all great spiritual applications. If you're over somebody or God puts you in a place of responsibility, one of the main things to do is to watch out what they're learning. Right? We unfortunately, and I'm not preaching to anybody here, but I've watched many a time where I've sat at a parent-teacher conference, and I know more about their child than that parent does. And they're looking at me for answers, and I'm like, they're one kid in a room of 34. I see them for 41 minutes a day. You're asking me what they're like? You know, because parents have abandoned and abdicated that God-given responsibility to know, what are you learning? What happened today? What's going on? Like, that's a nice spiritual application, but the doctrinal application is simply that the bishop's main focus is the teaching of God's Word. If any of you have an aspiration or a heart to lead or preach or minister, the main job of the pastor is to preach and teach the Word of God, to make sure the, the food that the sheep are grazing on is good food and is not corrupted or poisoned. So that's my, that's my biggest responsibility. And you'll notice there were people back there screwing it up. That means there's always been false doctrine trying to poison the waterhole for the church. There's always been somebody with some crazy idea. You notice in verse 4, he talks about fables. In chapter 4, verse 7, he adds on and calls them old wives' fables, like stories. You know how many women are behind crazy religious ideas? Like Seventh-day Adventism was started by Ellen G. White. She's a woman who hit her head and had all these strange visions. Christian science was started by Mary Baker Eddy, right? The first person that spoke in tongues and got a little crazy on this continent was a woman at the Azusa Street Mission in Kansas, I believe, in Topeka, right? So he's saying these, these wives' fables, these stories that these women are telling themselves and perpetuating. He says, watch out for that. He says four times he tells the pastors to watch out for fables, watch out for stories. Well, my grandmother said this, and I just think the angels come down like that. Yeah, what does the Bible say? <laughs> What does the Bible say? I like that story, but it's not the Bible, you know. Well, I just think, you know, he does this, and, you know, every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings. Very nice. Great movie. I love Jimmy Stewart, too. Some people say I look like him. Well, I never knew I had so many friends. But I, nah, that's not Bible, right? I need, I need what the Bible says. Um, look at verse number four. He also says, endless genealogies, right? He says, uh, it doesn't matter where you come from. Right? Timothy, you came from a broken home. Don't get caught up in all this. We have a church out in here now. It's in all over America, right? The LDS Church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, otherwise known as the Mormons. They're obsessed with genealogies because they're trying to baptize people for the dead. They're trying to retroactively get people saved, right? So it's a, he says, don't get caught up in all that stuff. Uh, look at verse 7. Desiring to be teachers of the law understanding neither what they say nor where they affirm, but we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully. He says, you got to understand the proper use of the law. Right? We're not under the law, right? Amen. I'm not preaching on it. But there's a good use for the law. Amen. You use the law to evangelize the lost. You use the law like a cannon to shoot down the self-righteousness of the lost. So somebody says, well, I think I'm a pretty good person. And I say, how many lies have you told this week? And they look at you funny. And you say, have you ever taken something that's not yours? Maybe once. <laughs> and this is the bad one, guys. Jesus said, if you look with lust, you've committed adultery. Have you ever looked on somebody with lust and you watch their mouth stop? The Bible says in verse number 9, that's the right use of the law. You use it for the, un, for the lawless and disobedient, not for a righteous man, because you're not under the law. I'm not going to put you under a law you're not bound to. So you've got to understand those things. And verse number 10, watch this. 
He mentions the word sound doctrine. Four times Timothy and Titus are admonished about sound doctrine, healthy doctrine, good doctrine. That's, you know that's the biggest responsibility of a church? It's not to entertain you. It's not to have programs for your kids, though I think we should have some things for the kids. The main purpose of a church being left here is so that the doctrines that have committed to the church can be perpetuated and taught and passed down. Now, if I asked 99.9% of the churches maybe in America that question, they would say, well, doctrine is a scary word to them. They don't like that word doctrine. It sounds like cracker juice, very stale to them. But the Bible says it was given for doctrine, and we've been committed doctrine, and we're supposed to be teaching doctrine and making sure nobody else is teaching the wrong doctrine. So that's a big point of it. Go to 1 Timothy. Um, under this thing of doctrine, Timothy gets, or uh, Timothy and Titus, the pastors get four uh, faithful sayings. This is a faithful saying. You know what they are? 1 Timothy 1.15. It makes a message all by itself. 1 Timothy 1.15. This is a faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. The first faithful saying that a pastor is told to live and preach is, the sinner can be saved. That's the first message. It's faithful. It's dependable. It's reliable. We could trust it. You could preach this, Timothy, because it's believable. It's, it's trustworthy. The sinner can be saved. Any sinners in here? Amen. If I could just find me a sinner, I know I got a savior that could save you, but you just can't find sinners anymore these days. Everybody's too good and too sophisticated. But if you could just find a, if you, if you could just find a sinner, I got a savior that could save you, right? He says, I came to save sinners. Look at chapter 4, verse 9. Here's the second one. 4.9. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. The second faithful saying is the servant is going to suffer. If you're going to serve, you're going to suffer. So first faithful saying is bank on it. The sinner can be saved. The second one, the servant is going to suffer because you trust God your approach to this world. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. It is a faithful saying, for if we be dead with Him, we shall also live with Him. The third thing that's faithful is the saint is eternally secure in Christ. If Jesus Christ died and rose again, and you're in Christ, you're going to rise again. You're eternally secure in Him. It makes a good outline. The, saved, the sinner can be saved. The servant's going to suffer. The saint is secure. And Titus chapter 3 is your last one. Verse 8. Titus 3.8. Titus 3.8. This is a faithful saying. And these things I will that thou affirm constantly that they which have believed in God, is that you? Amen? Might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. The saved are supposed to show it. That's a great outline. The sinner can be saved. The servant's going to suffer. The saint is secure. And the saved person is supposed to show it. You say, why does Pat have to get on me from the pulpit? I was told to in the Bible to say, hey, do right, do right, do right, do right. Why? Because the world's got to see your light. They can't see the halo on your soul. They can't look inside your heart and see your faith in Jesus. They got to see your good works to know that you're glorifying your Father in heaven. So there's faithful sayings given to a pastor to preach. All right, let's go back to 1 Timothy 1. Here's the end of the conclusion of this first chapter. He says, 1 Timothy 1.8, This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, which some having put away concerning faith have made shipwreck. He says, Timothy, fight the good fight so you don't end up shipwreck. Now, if you remember... In Acts chapter 27, Paul is on a ship <laughs> that's wrecked. <laughs> and 
and Paul's life is a pattern for the church. And at the end of the church age, which is the end of Paul's life, he's on a ship that's getting wrecked by a storm. And the Bible says we're not supposed to be tossed about with every wind of doctrine. We're not supposed to be tossed about by all these ideas floating around there. And he says, hey, Timothy, make sure you know the doctrine. Make sure you teach it the right way so you don't end up shipwrecked like that story when the ship got wrecked. So let's go on to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Right? 1 Timothy chapter 2. And right after doctrine, and this is a great illustration, he talks about prayer. Right after doctrine, it's an admonition for the man of God to be a man of prayer. 1 Timothy 2. I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. So, Timothy, teach your people about prayer. Be a man of prayer. Exalt people, exhort people to pray. That's why we have a prayer meeting on Tuesday nights. That's why we say you can come early on Sundays at 10 o'clock in this room. We pray together as a, as a church family for the service, for our needs. Why? Because that's the first action you could be doing and that's the first thing Paul was doing after he got saved they said behold he prayeth look for him in the street that's called straight he's praying it's a good start now I want you to notice God's order because God's order is important the teaching and preaching of the Bible is always first it's always preeminent it's always ahead of prayer you ain't going to find a verse where it puts prayer ahead of the Bible nowhere no how but a close second right behind it is always prayer <laughs> You want God's order? The Bible first. You want God's power? Prayer. That, that's the way the book is laid out. First chapter, doctrine. Doctrine. Make sure you're learning the right stuff. Make sure you're teaching the right stuff. Make sure you're trusting the right stuff. And then secondly, make sure you're praying, Timothy. And he lists in there four types of prayer that we should be doing. Why? Verse 3, he says, it's God's pleasure. He says, this is good and acceptable with God. God likes it when you pray. What dad doesn't like hearing and helping his children? At least a good dad. I mean, I know there's plenty of bad dads out there that ruin the picture for God. But God is a good father, and he likes to hear you pour out your petitions, and he likes to intervene in those things. He likes to see your faith in him, that you say, Lord, Lord, I'm helpless. He doesn't take some kind of sadistic pleasure. He says, oh, I want to help you. Right? He, he, he's attentive to those things. The Bible says his eyes are over the righteous and his ears are open unto their prayers because he's a good father and he, he hears our desires, he hears our needs, he hears our burdens. Verse 4, he says, it's not just his pleasure, but it says it's his desire that we pray for everybody. Amen. He'll have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. Sorry, Mr. Calvin. Once again, the Bible stands way against you. Right? He says, God wants everybody to be saved. God wants everybody to come into the knowledge of the truth. And only if you're a religious idiot can you read that verse other than the way it's written. Right? So pray, pray, pray. Then he says in verses 5 to 7, not only is it God's pleasure and God's desire, God has given us a provision to pray. He says, I've given you a mediator. Jesus Christ is your stand between. He's your high priest to make this possible. So pray, Timothy, pray, pray, pray. Right? Verse 8. I will therefore, because God's pleased by it, because this is what God's wanted, because God has made provision for this, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. That's a reference to Exodus 17, when Moses went up on the mountain with Aaron and Hur. When Moses lifted up those hands, they won. When those hands got dropped, they lost. When you pray, you win. When you stop praying, you lose. So that's the picture. He says, don't get mad. Don't get doubtful. Pray it up. Get somebody to pray with you. Get yourself an Aaron and a Hur and find yourself a rock somewhere. Sit on it and start praying like Moses did and you'll see the victory. Third thing he talks about. This one is going to get me in trouble. He talks about women. I can already feel the room get tense. My wife's not here, so I'm safe. I'll delete the recording. But 1 Timothy 2.11, he says about the proper role of women in the church, he says, let the, now let's contextualize this. 
He says in verse 11, Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection, but I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. That doesn't mean a woman can't give a testimony, teach a Sunday school class, say amen, sing a hymn, come up to the podium and say a blessing that God gave her. It just means that women are not to serve as pastors in the church. That's all. God does not, did not ordain women to take the role of a pastor. It doesn't mean they're useless. It doesn't mean they're wallflowers. It just means you're not designed to do this. I'm not designed to, give, to, to, to produce a baby, contrary to most of the rhetoric out there right now, but I'm not. Right? No matter what pronouns I put on my Zoom chat, I'm still not going to be able to do it. Right? But God says, this is the role for the man. Why? Verse 13, for Adam was first formed, then Eve. He says, I'm putting the burden on the man because the man failed in the beginning. Adam was a bad husband in the beginning. So now men, you've got to pick up the slack. He dropped the ball. He didn't teach his wife. He wasn't protecting his wife properly. So now men, you've got to stand up and you've got to defend the church, protect the church, oversee the church, and teach the church like Adam should have taught his wife. Right. See that? It's not out of superiority. It's out of our stupidity that we've been tasked with this role. Amen. That's one brother. That's one honest man. He, he, wants, he wants the ride home to be good tonight. So, <laughs> Verse 14. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Now, I can already feel my, my body twitching when I say this, right? The woman is called the weaker vessel in the Bible. Not that she's dumb. In fact, there are more women, I think, in Mensa than there are men. So women are definitely smarter than us. Uh, just go to the last youth group meeting and you know that girls definitely are smarter than guys. We did a competition and the girls outworked the guys easily. But um, women are more spiritual, more susceptible, and more sensitive to spiritual things. The woman was deceived. I mean, just they're, they're lightning rods. I mean, women were the first to follow Christ. They just have that more spiritual affinity, that more, you know, guys are blockheads. They're fishing. And the women are all following Jesus already, and they're like fishing and mending their nets. Because, and, but the devil can use that against you, ladies. So a lady needs an authority over her to protect her. Whether it's a pastor, a husband, a father, they need that covering because the devil will be happy to come in there and try to manipulate your emotions, manipulate your feelings, manipulate your sensibilities, and play on what could be your strength. Your sensitivity to spiritual things is a strength, but without a covering, it can become a weakness, and become exploited. So God said, we need to put a man over you. That's why if you think about it, up until you know some years ago when we got very modernized, women don't even have their own name. They have their father's name, and they have their husband's name. Right, Because God intended for a man to be over them to protect them, not to lord over them, not to be a chauvinistic pig over them, just to be that protector that Adam was supposed to be because there's something in a lady that the devil can exploit. Right? She just get, you just, you know, guys, something that we see will undo us. <laughs> like those cartoons, right? <laughs> you know, we'll follow some, some, you know, somebody that dresses the wrong way, the wrong way. You know, we'll follow, you know but you know what will get a lady? Something that's said to her. Just get their ear, get a thought twirling around in there. And the, you know, how many times I've said, have you seen a, an attractive lady with this schmo of a guy? You're like, what is he doing with her? She's a 10, he's a negative three. Like, how is this happening? Because just some guys can talk. And ladies are susceptible to that talk. Guys, we are a little bit of a blockhead. So God said we need a blockhead to watch out for the ladies because we're not so easily swayed by emotions and sensibilities. So God did that. Now, whew, I'm sweating. I don't know if you are, but I'm going to move on. All right. Now, 1 Timothy 3 then pivots from here into the qualifications for leadership because a leader is supposed to reproduce himself, Right? Christians are supposed to produce other Christians. Churches are supposed to produce other churches. And a pastor is supposed to be looking out over a congregation saying, who's going to be the next pastor? Who's going to replace you? Right? It's not supposed to be, I'm building a kingdom, and you're all coming genuflect before me. No, I left that religion 20-something years ago. It's supposed to be, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. So he gives Timothy the qualifications of spiritual oversight. The first one is your family life versus 
two, four, five, 11, 12. That's the first area to consider. That is the test of a man, your family life. I've got some, I don't have a lot of things stuck in my Bible, but I have this little thing taped in my Bible many years ago. It's called the test of a man. And it says, the place to take the test of a man is not the forum, nor the field, not the marketplace, nor the amen corner. The place to take the test of a man is at his own fireside. There he lays aside his mask. That is where he may be judged imp or angel, king or cur, humbug or hero. I care not what the world says of him, whether it crowns him with praise or pelts him with eggs. I care not what his reputation or religion may be. If his babes dread his homecoming and his better half has to swallow her heart every time she has to ask him for a dollar, he is a fraud of the first order. Even if he prays night and day till he is blue in the face or howls hallelujah till the eternal hills shake with the sound of it. But if his children rush to the front gate to meet him and love's own sunshine illuminates the face of his wife when she hears his footsteps, you may take it for granted that he's true for his home is a heaven. Good preaching, brother. <laughs> not impressed by all this stuff. You know the Bible is not impressed. How many souls you led to Christ? How many verses you got memorized? You know what the Bible tests? The first test is, what's your home life like? Because that's where it gets real. We could put on a real good show for each other, but you can't fool the people inside those four walls you live with. That's the real stuff. The next thing he says, if you look at verse 5, he says, for if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? There God is defining ruling. He says to rule is to take care of it. The, the, the pastor is said to rule in the church. Not that I got a scepter and I hit people over the head. Well, that would be fun at times. I've entertained that thought. But the idea of you to take care of things like the sun rules over the day. Genesis 1, the sun doesn't lord over you. The sun provides light. The sun provides boundaries. And that's what a pastor is supposed to do, what a husband's supposed to do, what a dad is supposed to do. Family life is first. Second area is personal life. Verses 2, verses 3, verses 6, verses 8. Personal life. Verse 6, not a novice lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. He says, you better watch that pride doesn't take you down like Lucifer. Because Lucifer was the light bearer. And everybody was looking at him as he was reflecting the light of God, and he couldn't handle it. And iniquity was found in him. And every week or every few weeks or every month or every whatever it is, you know, a pastor, teacher, elder stands up here. And what is he doing? He's just reflecting the light of God and trying to convey the light of God. You better make sure he's not a noob, that he can handle the attention and handle the responsibility and doesn't get puffed up with pride thinking, oh, wow, they need me. It's about me because that was Lucifer's fault. It'll be your fault, too. Third area to concern, your public life. Verse 7. He must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Hey, the devil will exploit a bad testimony. If you've got a horrible testimony, it's kind of hard for you then to take a leadership position because the devil's going to be pointing that out. And there's like a million exceptions to that. But he's like, keep your testimony good so God can use you because the devil would love to snare you with a bad testimony. Fourth is you got to believe the right things. Verse 9, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. And what's really interesting is if you look at the last verse of this chapter, it seems out of place. He's talking about pastors and deacons, the two offices in the church. And he says, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Hey, that verse is attacked in new versions, false versions all over the place. If you've got something other than a King James Bible, you might have another word in there besides God being manifest in the flesh. It might just say he appeared in a body or he was manifest in the flesh. The King James Bible keeps the deity of Christ intact that Jesus was God 
manifest in the flesh. But what's that doing at the end of a chapter about pastors and deacons? Because the humility that the Son of God had to exercise for God to be manifest in the flesh is the humility the servant of God must exercise for God to be manifest in this flesh. It took humility for Jesus, and it's to take humility for the servant of God that God might be manifest in the flesh and not yourself and your stinking pride. Chapters 4 to 6. Right? Chapters 4 to 6. These are the spiritual duties of the pastor. And by default, it could be anybody that wants to work for God. Right? You want to see what the first thing is? For one, the least popular, but the first thing. The pastor shepherd needs to look out and warn the flock. That's the first thing. He gives them warnings. He says, protect the fold. The first six verses of the chapter is about being on the lookout like a sheep looking out, like a shepherd looking out for wolves. Make sure the sheep don't get sucked in by any enemies. Verse 1, now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter time some, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. A pastor, a shepherd, needs to look out for the coming apostasy. He's got to be thinking 10 steps ahead of you and know where it might land you, what error it might take you into, what falling away it might lead to. That's why he's called an overseer. Look, you know when we make a big deal about music? Because I know where the music can go, Right? If you start bringing the wrong music into the church, it changes the whole church. The whole church will change when you change the music. You know what? The leaders have to be looking out for that. You say, it's just a little. Yeah, but I know where it's going. Same thing with the Bible version. You say, but it's easier for me to read. First of all, no, it's not. Second of all, I know where that's going, where it's going to lead you to. Well, I just want a little, little sin into my life. I want to just take, I know where that could take you. Right? It's, we are the overseers. The Bible says they watch for your souls. They're watching out like a shepherd watching out for wolves in sheep's clothing. They don't take anybody away. Verse 2, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. People who always depart will always contradict themselves. They'll never be consistent. Jesus looked at those Pharisees called them a generation of vipers. He called them serpents. They were being led by the devil. You know what he called them? Hypocrites! Because they could never be consistent. It'll always be inconsistent. Right? Verse number three. Forbid Here are the doctrines of devils. Here they are. Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats. That's crazy, isn't it? Which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. The doctrines of devils here affect relationships and start affecting like your diet and your consumption of things. Marriage and meat are under the attack of the devil. That seems like, what? Have you thought about, have you noticed how much biblical marriage is under attack? For whatever reason, whatever angle you want to come at it, whether it's just the divorce rate or who people think could get married or traditional marriage, all this stuff, it's under attack. It's a God-defined institution, Genesis chapter 2, but it's under attack. Furthermore, do you see how much the world is against meat? Amen. I mean, seriously. They want you to eat bugs. Yep. In Europe, they're eating bugs. They're grinding up bugs. The Bible says you're not supposed to eat creeping things. I know that from the Bible. But what's up with that? Isn't that strange? The Bible told you in the last days... There'd be people saying, hey, don't eat meat. Save the environment. Don't eat meat. And that cow, and that cow farts, just blows up the ozone. You got to stop, stop breeding those cows because give up those burgers. We got some nice crickets over here. We grind them up. We made some cricket patties. You put some, you know, Chick-fil-A sauce on them. It just tastes like chicken, right? That's strange. I mean, anybody thinking in the room? Do you ever think? It's good to think sometimes. What's going on in the world where meat now is taboo? We're talking about meat being something we need to give up, get over, let go of. That's a doctrine of the devil. That's what the Bible says. You don't have to thank me, Matt Califine. I know you love your, your liver. I know that. But I'm not just saying it for that reason. I'm saying it's wrong to eat other stuff. You want to eat like a rabbit? That's fine. But 
the Bible says that forbidding, that commanding to abstain, I do know, I remember distinctly an institution that I used to be a part of that said you certain people shouldn't marry and you're not supposed to eat meat on certain days. I just can't remember what it is. I, if anybody remembers, just tell me at the end of the service. But I, I remember this big institution that, that says you can't marry and you shouldn't be eating meat all these days of the year and month and stuff like that. If, if anybody remembers, just don't say it on air. Just tell me later. Maybe it'll jog my memory and I'll turn my collar around. So chapter 4, uh, verse 4. For every creature of God is good Amen. and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God. That's first. That's preeminent. And prayer, that's second. That's the order all the time. So you notice, verse 6. If thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things... Thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ. Here's the irony. Nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine whereinto thou hast attained. You know what he's telling the pastor in so many words? Don't get crazier than God about what you eat. Christians, especially today, are out of their minds about food. Should we eat this way? Should we eat that way? God's like, can you pray over it and bless God for it? Eat it. Whatsoever is sold in shambles, that eat, asking no question for conscience sake. The Bible says that. I'm not saying eat like a pig. I'm not saying eat bad intentionally. But listen, if you're on the mission field and they serve you this goat thing with the eyeball floating in the puddle of water like I've seen in Haiti, what are you going to do? I'm sorry, I'm vegan. Like, what, are you going to tell them that? Or if they serve you vegetables and you're like, oh, no, I only eat liver. Okay, you're going to offend them and ruin your testimony. The Bible says if you could pray over it and thank God for it, eat it. But Christians are going crazy. They're going crazy, like about eat this, the Daniel diet. Relax, everybody, relax. Maybe it'll give you an extra year. You know, but remember, death and life, that stuff's in God's hands. Be wise, but God decides how come the guy over here eats donuts and burgers, has high blood pressure, 50 pounds overweight, lives to 92, and this person over here that never smoked or drank or did anything wrong gets cancer at 56 and dies. You've all seen it happen. Because God's got a thing that's bigger than you and I. I'm not saying don't be sensible. I'm not saying don't be reasonable. For those 90 years, I'd like to be able to walk about on my own two feet and not be dragged around in a wheelchair. But let's not get crazy. All right? Verse 10. For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of how many men? All. All men, especially of those that believe. Yet again, i just like to point out it has nothing to do with my outline that God is the Savior of all men, believers and unbelievers. So John Calvin, once again, with his predestination nonsense, fails again. That's 0 for 100, Johnny. Verse 13. Till I come... Give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. He says, here's three things to overcome the falsehoods. Number one, keep reading the Bible. Number two, keep exhorting one another. Number three, make sure you got your doctrine right. Verse number 16. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this, thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. You know what he's saying? Timothy, take care of yourself first so you can take care of somebody else. You can't run on fumes. you got to get something from God first. You can't give people what you don't have, Timothy. You know, when the plane's going down, the oxygen thing drops, they say, put it on first before you help somebody else. And if the plane's going down, make sure you're getting something from God first before you help somebody else. It's easy to burn yourself out. Make sure you're walking with God, spending time with God, fellowshipping with God. Somebody said one time, a pastor has to keep going and keep growing. Right? We can't just stop and say, all right, I'm, I'm in leadership now. No, no, you got to keep going and keep growing. Chapter 5, very quickly. Chapter 5 is about how you treat others. Because a big part of the ministry is others, right? Mel Sabaka, the ministry's people, people, it's people. William Booth, on his deathbed, sent that one-word telegram. Others was the word, others. The ministry's about how you treat others. This chapter talks about widows, it talks about elders. How do you treat others? Verse 8, 
Let's start with the people inside your house. But if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. If Moses missed the promised land because he broke one type, smote the rock twice, what do you think happens to a father who breaks the type of God by not providing for his family and for his wife? You think God's happy with that person? He says, you're worse than an infidel. You're worse than some jihadist who wants to cut your head off. You're, you're worse than them. Somebody said this, I wrote it in my Bible. You'll never be over what God has put under you until you get under what God has put over you. Right? You'll never get be over what God has put under you until you get under what God has put over you. Until you get submitted to God's plan for you, you're never going to be the leader for somebody else. Right? Verse number 14. I will therefore that the younger women marry, bear children, guide the house. Women are a type, ladies, for anyone that thinks the Bible is misogynistic, you are typifying the Holy Spirit. You guide the house like the Holy Spirit guides the church. What a beautiful picture. There's something in the lady that wants to make that nest and watch out for her little chickadees. That's put in you by God because the Holy Spirit wants to make that nest and take care of the people of God. He says, you're the same way. Guiding the house like the woman guides the house like the Holy Spirit guides the church. Verse 17, let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture saith, thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. That's saying right there that a faithful elder can be compensated and still get a reward at the judgment seat of Christ. That's a double honor that he could still be taken care of and still get a reward. He's telling people, how do you treat each other? The elders are thrown in there with the widows. Verse number 23, verse 21, he says, I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that thou observe these things without preferring one another, doing nothing by partiality. He says, Timothy, watch yourself because somebody's watching you. The elect angels, not the ones that fell with Lucifer, the elect angels, the ones that chose to follow God, they're watching the church. They're watching you down there at Ephesus. They're watching your decisions that by the church might be known the manifold wisdom of God. So he says, I charge thee before the elect angels. I'm telling you, Timothy, you better live right. You better be wise. You better watch your behavior because the angels are watching and God's testimony is at stake. That's a charge. Verse 23, drink no longer water, but as I've often heard it recited at the mission, use a little wine for thy stomach's sake, right? And that often infirmities. It looks like Paul lost the power to heal. What happened, Paul? I thought you were an apostle. I thought you could lay hands on people. Ah, that gift passed away, brethren. Anybody thinks they still have it today? They haven't read their Bibles. Because Paul, you don't think if he had the power to heal Timothy, his beloved son in the face, faith, he wouldn't have done it? He says, Timothy, just use a little of this, you know, use a little of this for your stomach. Second Timothy, he says about one guy, I had to leave him at my lead him sick because he's losing the power to heal. The sign gifts left away when the door closed on the nation of Israel. So did the sign gifts go. Verse 24. Some men's sins are open beforehand, going before to judgment, and some men they follow after. Likewise also the good works of some are manifest beforehand, and they that are otherwise cannot be hid. This is at the end of a chapter about how the pastor is treating people. And at the end of the chapter he says, don't worry about it, pastor. God's going to settle the score. There's some people that just snub their nose at God, and your flesh wants to be... Get them. I just can't wait for the bottom to fall out. I can't wait for the hammer to drop. I, you know what? It may never drop. That person may thumb their nose at God and go live another 50 years of relative prosperity and so-called happiness. But the judgment seat of Christ is going to be a rude awakening. Now in our flesh, we want, oh, get them. Just get them, God. Knock the wheels of their tire. Give them a sickness. Take away their joy. You know, just take away their eyesight. Just biff them over the head with a beanie or something. Do something to them, God. God's like, maybe, 
Some men's sins are open beforehand. Some men they follow after. Payday someday. Amen. So pastor, he's telling Pastor Timothy, don't get too uptight about it. You may not see the shoe drop in this life, but I'm going to get him at the judgment seat of Christ. They're not going to pass it. Hey, oh, just a second. Before you pass go, we have a few things to talk about here. Let me just get some of that reward and just burn it up over here. You're going to lose all that. God's going to settle it. A pastor needs to remember that. And hey, the good things you're doing, you may not get the reward for it here. But in the future, Amen. in the judgment seat of Christ, you won't be able to hide them. He says, her own works will praise you in the gates if you're virtuous. So, chapter 6, and we'll, we're just about done, promise. Whoop. Let me kick that again. All right, chapter 6 is just some final admonitions, some final challenges to the pastor, to the elder, and to the worker. Verses 3 to 10, first admonition. Don't be covetous, because this world is not your home. He says, If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, so much for the Paul-only people, so much for the hyper-dispensationalist who's like, Paul, 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 Paul. I'm all about Paul, but this says you better be lining up with Jesus too. If any man consent not to those words and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil survisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and is certain we can carry nothing out. You come into the world naked, you go out just as naked. Right? No U-Hauls on the back of the hearse. And having food and raiment, let us be there with content. That is a, a, a reproach and a rebuke to every American Christian. Right? But they that will be rich, some people will be rich, but they that want it, that chase it, fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition for the love of money is the root of all evil which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Don't be covetous, because the world is not your home. Verses 5 and verses 10 are changed in almost all new versions. Verse 10, they like to say, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. That's not what it says. It's the root of all evil. You chase everything back, somebody's making a buck off of it somewhere. Say, why is there all this human trafficking in the world? Somebody's making money off of it. Why is there all this religious deception? Because somebody's making money off of it. It's always going back to the money. Always. Foul the money. Notice God connects perdition to money. Judas had the bag. The son of perdition was the one that had the money. You follow the money. You follow and find the Antichrist. Right? Keep looking at it. Second thing. 11, don't stop fighting because Jesus never quit on you. But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called and hast professed the good profession before many witnesses. I give thee charge in the sight of God, who quickeneth all things, and before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate, Witnessed a good confession. He says, don't you quit. Jesus didn't quit. He stood up in front of that punk, pagan pilot and just kept his testimony, didn't lose his stuff, didn't grit his teeth, didn't scream and pull his hair out. He just said, thou wouldst have no power over me except my Father in heaven gave it thee. <laughs> right? My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Right, therefore, he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. I mean, you hear the calm confidence of your Savior as he went back and forth with Pilate. He wasn't like, oh, oh, nothing like that. Just cool, confident, blood running down his face, knew exactly he was, what God wanted him to be. He says, hey, boy, you better man up because that's the one you're following. He didn't quit on you. He didn't run. He didn't cut, cut tail and run. He didn't give up. So you don't give up. I give thee charge, Timothy. 
Before Jesus Christ, who witnessed a good confession, you make sure you witness a good confession. You make sure people look at you and see your Savior. You make sure people look at you and don't see a quitter or a punk like the way Jesus Christ stood up in front of that punk pilot and maintained his testimony. Number three, don't give up because the king is coming. Fourteen, keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, until, there's an until, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in his times he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate, that's the powerful one, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only hath immortality dwelling in the light, which no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. He says, just hold on, Timothy. Don't give up. Jesus is coming. Amen. That's a good thing to remember. You don't have to do this forever. Amen. You just got to do it a little. You know, we, uh, we just finished a semester in high school in New York. And the kids are like, oh, it feels like we just had summer vacation. I said, yeah. And then you're going to blink. And you're going to be taking the SAT. And then you're going to be blinking. I'll be signing a yearbook. And then you'll be, it just, it's going fast. Uh, the time is speeding up. It's just a little while, folks. It's just a little while. And then you're going to hear your king coming. And it's all going to be okay. Don't give up. And lastly, verse 20, don't let yourself become a castaway. Because there's so many people that stood where you stood, Timothy, that waved the Bible around, that came to church, that sang the songs of Zion, that said, I'll never betray you like Peter. And then where are they now? I could look across this room. There's people that sat where you sat, that sang like you sang, that gave like you gave, that served like you served. And where are they now? He says, Timothy, don't be a castaway. Don't be one of those has-beens. Don't be one of those, you know, used-to-bees. Don't, don't be a bad example for a sermon someday. He says in verse 20, O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science, falsely so-called, we won't get into that now, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. Grace be with thee. Amen. Timothy, don't get your head all screwed up. Don't get your head inside your proverbial butt and get everything turned around, get yourself full of all these ideas. Just stick with the Bible, Timothy, because plenty of people stood where you stood. Paul lists them in the second letter. Talks about Titus, talks about Demas, talks about people that he labored with that have departed. People that were right next to him in the thick of it, departed. Why? They got some idea somewhere and that idea took root and took them away. Paul said, I don't want to be a castaway. He says, Timothy, don't be a castaway. Keep what God gave you. Avoid the stupid ideas. Stick with the book because other people have erred. Don't you err. Like the song goes, mighty men around us falling. Courage almost gone. Hold the fort for I am coming. Two very quick ideas. Go to 1 Timothy 4. I have one verse left to look at. Then we'll say amen. 1 Timothy 4. Two big ideas in the book of 1 Timothy. First, if you've been paying attention, I think you have been, very graciously. First, Timothy is the pattern for the Christian worker. If you just follow this pattern, you'll do great things for God. If you keep your doctrine sound and make prayer a priority and understand God's roles for men and women and remember the qualifications for leadership so you can keep yourself accountable and, and put other people into the ministry, if you can guard your walk, if you could treat others by the book, and number six, if you do it all because Jesus is worthy and his words saved your life, guess what? You'll be a great worker for God. The book lays out the pattern. It lays out the model. He says, Timothy, remember that broken home I took you from? I made something great out of you. Just follow the pattern. And then lastly, verse 12 of chapter 4, if you follow this pattern that he lays out in this book, you will be the example you were made to be. You say, why didn't God just take me to heaven when he saved me? Because you're here to be an example. You're here so other people see something about God, like how they're supposed to live, how they're supposed to respond, how Jesus Christ can be in their life and help them. That's what we're here for. If not, he should have just sapped us out of here the minute we called on Christ. What do we have to be? What kind of pattern are we supposed to be? Verse 12, Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, 
in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. You know what kind of example you're supposed to be? Number one, in what you say. Be an example in what you say. Number two, be an example in how you live. Number three, be an example in the love you show to others, charity. Number four, be an example in your demeanor, in the manner of life or the spirit you demonstrate daily. Number five, in your trust of God, in faith. And number six, in your holy and sincere living. That's the kind of example we're supposed to be. And you could only be that example if you follow the pattern. He told you what to do from doctrine to the admonitions. He's laid out for you how you can be the exemplary worker for God. You follow the pattern, you become a good example. You forsake the pattern, you end up a bad example. You're all going to be an example. You might as well be a good example. The bad examples just end up in sermons. Be a good example, and God will get the glory. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this book, for these admonitions, for these